Welcome to the Dairy Farmers of Canada's ProAction podcast series, Paths to On-Farm Excellence, where we discuss priority topics for Canadian dairy farmers. My name's Stephen Roach. I'm the director and principal consultant for an animal health research consulting firm called Acer Consulting, which is based in Guelph, Ontario. I'm part of a team that's working with the Dairy Farmers of Canada to help showcase Canadian dairy farming stories, industry updates, and the latest science, advice, and perspectives on high-priority topics that relate to ProAction. You'll find this channel features a number of different series, from animal care to biosecurity and beyond. This podcast series features conversations with farmers, veterinarians, nutritionists, hoof trimmers, and other farm advisors, researchers, and many other industry stakeholders. Our next discussion takes place with Dr. Katie Proudfoot, an animal health and welfare researcher that works at the University of Prince Edward Island. Katie has a great background in dairy cattle welfare, having conducted research in British Columbia, the United States, and now on the other side of Canada at UPEI. I sat down with Katie to discuss her perspectives on why producers should be motivated to continue to strive for improved animal health and welfare. She discusses the importance of understanding dairy cow behavior and how it relates to their welfare. She also touches on some high-priority animal welfare issues our industry is currently tackling and where the industry needs to go from here. So, let's jump in. Well, Katie, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to sit down with you today and and learn a little bit about your perspective on all things animal welfare in the Canadian dairy industry. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. So um, you've had a, a sort of a long career already in in animal welfare in a number of different places. I wonder if you can give our audience a bit of a handle on on some of the topics you've spent some time researching on and and where you've done that research and sort of your background in the industry. Sure. Yeah. So. I really started with dairy cows during my master's and PhD at the University of British Columbia at their animal welfare program. Uh, That's where I got my first exposure to dairy cow welfare research and did actually a majority of my research is focused around the time that the cow gives birth. So I've done a number of things uh, trying to understand cow behavior during that time and how to better accommodate cows. And then after my PhD at UBC, I was hired on at the Ohio State University in the College of Veterinary Medicine, uh, where I did a lot of teaching. So teaching is also a passion of mine. So I taught in the vet school, and then I continued doing more research along those same lines uh, and was there for about six years. And then as of October 2019, I um, I moved my whole family up to Charlottetown, Uh, Prince Edward Island, where I have a new position there as an associate professor in the Atlantic Veterinary College at the University of Prince Edward Island and the director of the Sir James Dunn Animal Welfare Center. Well, that's great. So it's you've really had a coast to coast experience with uh, with research and welfare and and everything from farmers to vets to uh, to other advisors. Yeah, and a little bit of Canada, a little bit of the U.S. Yeah, that's great. It gives me a different uh, perspective. No kidding. Um, and, and in PEI, what are some of the focus areas of, of your work and, and the center that you're talking about in terms of animal welfare? Yeah, so my particular work is still going to focus a lot on the cow around calving. Um, this is an area that there's, I think, still lots of research that we can do. There's been decades of research trying to understand why cows get sick after mm-hmm. they give birth. But before my PhD, there wasn't a lot of research around 
the cow's behavior and some of her um, her needs around that time period. Right. So I'll continue to focus in that area, um, and we can talk a little bit more about what kind of outcomes that uh, have come out of that research, because uh, we have found a lot of really interesting things that cows do uh, if you give them the opportunity uh, around calving. But the center itself has a lot of interests beyond dairy cows. So there's people at AVC that study uh, horse welfare, cat and dog welfare. We have a lot of service projects where we give money uh, to help people with low income have the opportunity to spay and neuter their animals and things like that. Uh, so the, the center itself is quite diverse in the animal welfare projects we have. That's great. It's nice to uh, to have an opportunity to work with colleagues that have a, a probably a pretty wide variety of expertise and, and perspective on how to understand and, and improve welfare. Yeah. So um, I, I like to ask researchers uh, like yourself, what got you into to welfare and, and sort of what, uh, what keeps you motivated and excited about looking at things from the, the dairy perspective in this case? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think my story might be a little different from other people. So I grew up in Southern California um, in a suburb and really had no exposure to agriculture growing up. But I always knew that I was was really interested in in animals and and research. So when I was an undergrad, I studied. I ended up studying stress in people, mm. and so my job was actually to stress people out on a daily basis, which was not the most fun job yeah. in the world. <laughs> Soon realized that that's not what I wanted to do with my life, and that I really loved the concepts I was learning, understanding how stress can impact the body, which is something I think every person needs to understand is how bad stress can be for you. Uh, But I wanted to take that concept and try to apply it to animals in such a way that actually helped the animals, not just helped medical research about humans. So I looked into animal welfare research and found UBC, and that's really when I realized this was a field and and sort of all of my interests collided into this one field, and um, I've been really, really happy and satisfied since I discovered animal welfare was the science. Well, that's great, and it's, I think it's certainly needed. Um, so if we do look uh, a little bit more focused on, on the dairy industry today, um, there's a wide variety, as many of us know, and certainly those listening have experienced uh, a number of issues that we may need to tackle. And I think we've been successful in tackling some, and, and yes, there are many others that we need to continue to focus on in terms of dairy cattle care. Um, from your perspective, and you've got some from the States, which would be sort of interesting to hear, I think North America and maybe many developed countries in general that have well-established dairy programs are still experiencing many of the similar issues. What for you are some of the emerging or, or welfare concerns, priorities that we need to be working on from, from a dairy industry perspective today? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I'll say, too, that uh, uh, although I've come from not a dairy background, during my master's and PhD, I lived and worked on a farm for for almost eight years. Mm -hmm. So that gave me, uh, I kind of have a perspective of both uh, someone from an outside, but also someone from the inside. And I think animal welfare concerns are a little bit different, depending on which perspective you take. So from inside the industry, I think lameness is still one of our biggest challenges. Mm Um, some other issues I think within within the industry we're dealing with are coal cows um, and down cows. So dealing with when a cow goes down, how are we moving her, uh, making timely euthanasia decisions about those cows, which are not easy decisions. Right. 
Um, it's, it's a really complicated and emotional topic, uh, which is why I think it is one of our biggest challenges. Uh, things like painful procedures. So um, in Canada, at least in our code of practice, there is some requirements around pain control, um, or I guess requirement isn't the right word, but in the States, that's not something that is um, in any way in our standards of care. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I think hopefully the U.S. follows Canada's lead on that, that using pain control for painful procedures is really important because that's something that we have direct control over as caretakers. So those are some issues that I think down the line are going to come up yep. as, as also important. Yeah, it's, it's, I like how you frame that. It's sort of the, the push and pull of how we respond as an industry to consumer concerns or outsider concerns. It doesn't have to necessarily just be consumers. It could be our retailers or our processors. Um, but then recognizing there are many issues that we see on a day-to-day -day basis that we know we need to to improve on or, or address just because they're not undesirable and, and can be painful situations. Mm-hmm. So I know your uh, background in particular and some of the work you've spent a lot of time um, researching and trying to get a, a better understanding for is really behavior and the welfare of the cow and maybe the calf too. You can sort of fill me in on that a little bit around that time of calving, uh, maybe the most stressful point in time for, for our animals on dairy. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit about that? What have we learned? What are some of the key lessons learned and outcomes that, that producers and really anyone in the industry listening to this might benefit from knowing? Sure, yeah. So my research, when I first started my PhD at UBC, uh, we had a really basic question about cow behavior when she's preparing to give birth. Um, if we look at what happens in cow-calf operations with beef cows or in wild ungulates, uh, there's this very common behavior that happens where uh, cows will leave the herd uh, will distance themselves and will find a secluded, hidden place to give birth, like tall grass or tree cover. I think anyone that owns a cow-calf operation knows the cow when when she's calving. It's she's in the far back forty, yep. you know, where you can't find her or the calf, and for good reason. So it's probably as an anti-predator strategy, um, but also for the cow to um, hide herself from other cows and be able to build a bond with her calf, which is really important in the beef industry, um, less important in the dairy industry because th we separate them early. But our question was, do cows still have that behavior when we house them indoors in a dairy barn? Uh, because typically we don't give them the opportunity to hide when they're giving birth. So, and we do sometimes move them to individual pens, so mm -hmm. we might separate them. Um, but often those individual pens are right next to the milking parlor, somewhere in a very high traffic area where there's a lot of noise and activity. Uh, so we did a couple of studies and found that if you do give cows the opportunity to hide themselves at calving, many of them will. Not all of them, but many of them will, especially those that calve during the daytime. Mm -hmm. At night, they don't seem that motivated to hide, maybe because it's already dark and quiet. Uh, but during the daytime, if you give them, uh, for example, in one of our studies, we had an individual box stall, and we just made a plywood corner. We didn't cover the whole stall um, because that would probably be stressful for the cow. They don't want complete seclusion because, again, they're a prey animal. Uh, but having just a little corner they could hide in. And in that study, 80% of the cows used that little corner to calve. 
so very easy, practical, and we've done more work with in group pens, um, giving cows a little blind for them to hide behind. I think the only take-home message there is that um, cows will see that as a valuable resource and they will fight over it. So if you are going to give a group of cows an area to hide, there needs to be more than just one for a group or you have to find a way to kind of make it uh, something that multiple cows can use. Mm-hmm. Um, but they certainly will um, use it if you give them the opportunity. So I've seen dairy producers kind of take that and run with it. So some have put up curtains around their their maternity pens or even just uh, uh, straw bales piled up within a group pen or outside of an individual pen. Um I had a producer that put up a corrugated metal wall between his maternity pen and the holding area and the milking parlor, um, and he said there was a lot of success with that, that, that cows seem more calm and they're um, able to progress through labor more normally when they have that um, sort of secluded area to hide behind. Mm-hmm. Do you see any differences in parity or, and so, because naturally that's where my head goes is, is, you know, so a cow that's experienced this process, maybe under that sort of conventional or traditional system, you know, third lactation or greater, do we see a difference there? We did see a difference in one of our studies where we actually had the cows on pasture in Tennessee. Okay. um, And they had access to a barn and an area of pasture. And then on like the far end of the pasture, there was some tree cover and tall grass. And the heifers calved in the area with the tall grass. The cows calved in the barn. Hmm. So, and I think part of that might be um, from previous experience. There's also some earlier work that showed that heifers um, that were interrupted or disturbed by other cows while they're in the process of labor were more likely to distance themselves even further. So it could be also a a social dominance thing or social relationship. So we're we're understanding that a little bit more, but I think in the heifers that need to hide, at least in a more natural setting, um, but you could bring that inside a barn too, is a little bit stronger than with the cows. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it's not a lot of work. Like you had mentioned that it's fairly practical or it can be very practical yeah. depending on your specific setup to, to, to make this jive. It's not like we need to completely redesign and, and pour new cement to, to create some of these structures. Yeah. In our, uh, the latest study we did at Minor Institute in New York, we used a Jersey road barrier, which is what they use in construction. Um, it's this big plastic empty container, and when it's not filled with water, it's about 100 pounds. You fill it with water, and it's like yeah. 3,000 pounds. I don't know. The cows could not knock it over, and that mm-hmm. was you know, our criteria for a good hide is the cow can't break it. Um, so it's cheap. The um, skid loader can move around it to clean out. This was an embedded pack. Um, you could pack around it. It was a very easy thing to install without having to drill into the concrete even. Mm-hmm. So, and, or straw bales, I think, also are very practical too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that way you can remove it if it's not working or if you see something you know, that you uh, think is a better, a better option. Mm-hmm. And, and then just out of curiosity, I mean, it sounds like it's better in, in, in that we're enabling these cows to sort of express a more natural behavior in a more of an artificial environment that we've created. Um, 
do we see any any changes or any differences in um, transition disease or uh, other health and welfare outcomes that be are beyond just that that sort of short period of time? Yeah, that's a great question, and I don't have the answer. Yeah, I wondered if that if we know. Yeah, we don't know. Um, I would predict that it it would help at least. I don't know if it'll have an impact on disease, but mm-hmm. um, at least it reduce stress around calving. And that could have various outcomes post-calving. Um, we are sort of measuring that in our current study, but we don't have thousands of cows, so I don't know if we'll get a really good understanding of it. But um, it's interesting, though, despite not having the health side of things, it's still something that producers that I've talked to are really interested in. And and I think that's really cool that it's very intuitive. Often when I talk about it, they're like, yes, I know. I, you know, I mm-hmm. could tell my cow wanted to hide or it totally makes sense. And so people are doing it despite not having um, any sort of, as we know, an economic benefit and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, especially when we think about the the consumer side and, and sort of what we sort of can communicate to to the public, it gets lost sometimes that our farmers care for these animals and we don't often need or we don't always need an economic argument yeah. or, uh, you know, a significant difference in a reduction in disease. Of course, those things are nice and they give us a real good, you know, sort of kick in the butt to do to do that. But mm-hmm. it, being able to ensure that these cows have a comfortable and happy existence uh, is also a huge priority. Yeah, for sure. I think that's that's a really important thing that any dairy producer I talk to agrees with. They mm-hmm. they want to to create environments that their cows are gonna use and and enjoy. So um, it's been that's my favorite area of research for that reason too. Is I it's it's not usual for a researcher to see their work in practice mm-hmm. and not all the time. So it's great when I get to go on farms and they've they've heard that and they've done something and I've seen some really creative things too that I think that's something else like be innovative with yep. with how you do this because um, there's not one way to do it. Yep, and that's farming in and of exactly. itself. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> great. Do you want to speak a little bit to some of the the behavioral work you've done at this point? I think, I mean, you don't explicitly mention it in there, but I think it's interesting when we talk about welfare and and really trying to understand cattle, dairy cow behavior. Um, it seems like a topic we're still learning a lot about. And to use the example of pain, trying to understand the behaviors associated with an animal that can't give us a direct feedback on on how they're feeling, behavior becomes so important for us to understand because it either indicates to us that something's wrong or, in fact, this is a natural behavior that we shouldn't really be concerned about. So from your standpoint, where do, how does behavior play into our understanding of welfare? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I'll, probably, I'll use the example of uh, behavior changes around sickness um, and around pain. Sure. Uh, because those are two things I'm really interested in, and, and there's actually quite a lot of research in those topics. Like, it seems uh, sort of intuitive that animals will change their behavior when something goes wrong, but um, there's some really interesting uh, research, not just in dairy cows, but in other animals, about how our body responds to stuff like uh, pathogens and, and um, painful experiences. So... So when we get sick, any mammal that gets sick, uh, there's this 
general behavioral response that happens. I think everyone knows what happens when they get, when my husband gets sick, he wants to eat ice cream on the couch downstairs watching Netflix. So <laughs> he doesn't want to move. He doesn't want me or my one-year-old to bother him. Yep. Um, he wants to be by himself. Um, I think a lot of people have kind of the same thing when they feel ill. And that's the same with animals and same with cows. So when cows get sick, they go off feed. Uh, they ruminate less. They are less active. They want to spend more time laying down if they have a disease like metritis. Um, something like my mastitis is kind of interesting because they actually don't want to spend more time laying down, probably because it's painful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where pain and sickness kind of come together and, and make this sort of different behavior. So cows with mastitis will stand for a lot longer, but they'll stand still. Mm-hmm. So they don't want to use energy. And all of that is actually meant to help your body conserve energy to mount an immune response. So it's all for a purpose. Right. So those sickness behaviors not only can tell us when a cow is not feeling well, but it also is something that we should allow the cow to do. Give her the room to lay down and rest. Um, or if she has mastitis, a more comfortable place if she wants to lay down. Uh, give her easy access to food. Um, and in some of our work, we showed that cows that are sick will also um, isolate from other cows. Mm-hmm. So given the opportunity to hide, they will. So that's something else to consider is your sick cows uh, may be a little less social than they normally would and maybe would prefer to be in a place that is a little protected from other cows. And then for pain, there's other uh, very specific behaviors you see. So depending on where the pain is, so for example, a calf that is dehorned without pain control or disbudded, um, during the procedure itself, they'll be uh, kicking and things like that, but then afterwards you'll see ear flicks or head shakes, and that's all associated with the pain being in their head. Mm -hmm. Um, An animal that has an abdominal injury or a cow that has metritis um, who has a uterine palpation, they'll show a back arch. Um, or animals that are castrated show that back arch, and that's another behavior that tells you that um, they're feeling pain and it's in a specific area of their body. It's really interesting to to think about all the nuances of that, right, depending on where the pain is and, and the age of the animal, too. You've done some work in calves, and you mentioned some of the work related to dehorning. Um, there's a lot of talk in Canada now about, um, you mentioned pain control, the need for it, uh, revolving around how does pain control work and is there are there differences associated with the methods that we used and so like something like caustic paste is something it seems to be a conversation among different groups do we understand and are there important differences from a behavioral perspective in terms of our young or young stock versus our adult stock other than what you've mentioned already um i don't I think there might be some things we don't understand yet about young animals and how they respond. Mm -hmm. So there might be like a very young animal may still feel pain the same way, but may not have uh, as great a response as an older animal. Although I think we need to do more research in that. It's also a really challenging thing to measure in cattle because they're prey animals and in general prey animals don't want to show they're in pain. Right. So when a cow is showing you she's in pain, it's probably a pretty severe state at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she may be feeling pain, even an adult, um, but they won't show it because it's showing off to if she was in the, you know, the great outdoors and there was predators, yeah. then it, she would kind of give herself a, um, a show that she's a nice little target for them. 
So that makes it challenging regardless of age, I think. Mm -hmm. But in general, those are some, and they may look subtle, uh, but even subtle behaviors tell you that, that the animal is experiencing pain. And then also with pain, you do see some of those same behaviors as with sickness. So they might um, just look a little depressed, like they're not eating as much, um, and they're just showing you that, that there's something wrong, even though they're not you know, standing up and vocalizing. But a, a cow that's doing less behavior actually shows you there's something wrong as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, to that point about about showing signs too. I, when I talk to consumers or even family, you know, that don't have, and I'm not from a farm myself, but like yourself, have spent lots of time in the industry. Um, I often liken it to to the household cat. You know, when they're not feeling yeah. well, it's like they disappear all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And it's usually because there's some painful condition, and they're not they're really good at hiding it. Yep. So um, one of the, the things that I that we chatted about sort of before we started recording that I think would be interesting to get your perspective on related to behavior and, and working with animals is handling. Um, I really I realize it's sort of difficult sometimes to talk about handling uh, in an audio format, um, but I think it's important, uh, and we've got other conversations talking about how do we embrace as a herdsperson or, you know, a member of a team working with animals that safe, calm approach to, to handling our animals. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, there's been a, a quite a bit of research also in this area. And I think a challenge we have is that there's lots of handling skills that anyone can learn. Anyone yep. can learn how to use a flight zone or point of balance and things like that. But it's not really the skill that makes you perform a behavior. It's your attitude. So having the right attitude towards good handling Um, And kind of a culture of good handling on a farm is really important. And that starts from the top down. So everyone needs to be on board with what is good handling, um, what is appropriate on my farm, uh, what's not appropriate, and how to step in when there's things that aren't appropriate. And from the cow's perspective, I think something we don't often think about is uh, cows actually do recognize individual people. So there's research on that. They actually use our face. They, they can tell our faces apart, which is pretty strange to think about because their vision is not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can tell us apart and they can remember who treats them poorly. So there's, that was shown with, with research that cows that were treated poorly in the past, when that person entered the milking parlor, they had a stress response, the cow, even when that person was just standing in front of them. So that tells you that if you are using some sort of negative handling, cows will it will not only affect them during that moment, it'll affect them uh, during an important moment, like when they're being milked. And, and in that same study, they found that those cows that were treated more negatively um, were less likely to let down their milk. So it's something that I think... If a, a farm manager down to every employee understands how important it is, not just from, uh, well, from an animal welfare perspective, also from a production perspective, a cow is going to make more milk if she is not experiencing fear and stress mm-hmm. uh, around uh, the people that are around her. Uh, and that becomes a culture on the farm. I think that's really important. Yeah, I think that's 
that's great. And I really like your comments about the attitude bit because it really does start from there. I mean, any change, regardless of sort of the specific change we're talking about, you've got to embrace that. You've got to have the mindset, especially if you've got a larger team and our dairies are getting larger and mm-hmm. more complex, you know, robots or, or whatever. We've, we've got lots of technology, but still lots of people at the end of the day. And, uh, and that presents a challenge if we're not all on the same page and, and if we're not maybe embracing the, the approach that we might like to see. And it's nice to see that we've got research suggesting that there is value in that effort, not just from how the animal is feeling, but from some of the very real reasons we are farming in the first place, the product we're producing. Yeah. And I'll add to that with handling, when I say negative behaviors, I don't mean animal abuse. Yes. And so that's different. Yeah. And so even just shouting at a cow, a cow has very, very good hearing. They have their ears are much larger than ours, which amplifies the sound. So what we think might be not a very loud sound could actually be quite loud to a cow. Mm -hmm. And there is research, again, to show that um, from the cow's perspective, a shout is actually as aversive as uh, a short electric prod. So it's it's something we don't normally think about is shouting, um, hitting the cow or using... Doing a tail twist can be appropriate when you need to do a tail twist, but doing an appropriate tail twist and not breaking the tail, things like that are um, are things that we don't always think about as negative handling, and they can become normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the thing I'd add to that too is is recognizing that we tend to move quicker than cows, and you know, so there's a lot mm-hmm. associated with just the speed placement of ourselves and the way in which we move in relation to them. It it's Sometimes it sort of seems simple to talk about, but it's a, I mean, we all know there's frustrating situations. There's stubborn cows. There's cows that, for whatever reason, don't want to go some sort of place. And, and so that's when some of these things, like you're saying, raising your voice is an easy way to get them moving. But, you know, that can in, in, induce that stress response that we're talking about and really have a longer-term effect on them. Yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of those behaviors happen when we're trying to get them to the milking parlor. Yes especially a heifer going to the milking parlor for Mm -hmm. the first time, and the heifer will remember that. And so then you don't want to create a negative experience for that heifer. It's like if you go to the dentist and every time you go, you get a root canal, um, you're never going to want to go to the dentist. (laughs) If you go to the dentist and they give you a big piece of chocolate after your cleaning or something, then, you know, it's, it's, you feel a lot better about it. So making it more of a positive experience, however you can, especially the first time I think is, is a much easier way for everyone Mm -hmm. instead of having to constantly yell or um, make noises to get cows to move. Right. So you mentioned before when I asked you about um, sort of emerging welfare issues or or issues that we we need to tackle today. Um, And again, I like how you sort of presented that and from an internal and, and external perspective. What would you say, I mean, we could have consumers listening here, and of course, you know, we are ultimately, all of us in the industry, responsible for ensuring not just food or safety and, and quality, but but the, that, the, you know, environmentally we're doing what we can, from an animal health perspective we can do, and that do what we can, and, and of course, from a welfare standpoint. What would you say some of the things that we're, in the last several years, we're doing well? What's working in the industry, and, and what maybe you can't attribute one thing, but generally where are we seeing forward progress and momentum? What can we be proud of? Our farmers work hard and they're being asked to do a lot. What would you say sort of some of those those shining moments for us? Yeah, I think the Canadian dairy industry has a lot to be proud of. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it's especially when it comes to animal care. And I think obviously with any industry, there's room for improvements. But I think uh, some the thing that differentiates the U.S. from Canada, too, is, is the codes of practice, uh, that they exist and that they set these standards of care and, and they come from um, the industry plus getting perspectives from the public and from, from other scientists and other people. And then on top of that, uh, what the dairy industry has done that's different from other food animal industries is proaction and actually having eyes on every farm uh, to look at some of the things that the industry recognizes as a, as animal welfare problems, mm-hmm. like lameness and hog lesions and body condition. Those are all things that um, I think it's uh, really important for uh, dairy farmers to get. I mean, they are they have in the past done a good job um, preventing things like lameness, but uh, having proaction can help give them even more incentive to do that. So I think that uh, is a, a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And it, it can help to benchmark ourselves too. Yes. Right? Sometimes yeah. we don't know there's an issue, it's just the norm, and then realize there are other ways of doing it or other outcomes um, associated with subtle changes sometimes. Mm-hmm. How do advisors play a role in, in all of this, in supporting individual farms and getting over some of these challenges and then maybe acting as a link to help get the research that you're doing into the hands of those that are, you know, ultimately responsible for putting that into practice. Yeah. And I'd, I'd point out the veterinarian as one of those key advisors. And so I've had a lot of experience. I'm not a veterinarian myself, but I've been in a vet school for the last, uh, close to seven years. So, um, I've trained veterinarians, And we don't do a lot of training actually in animal welfare for veterinarians, but there's a lot of veterinarians that have, uh, they have some of the expertise that dairy farmers can use to help them deal with, for example, they get their proaction report and they need to, uh, maybe lameness was something that they could improve, uh, getting their, of course, hoof trimmer involved and their, their veterinarian can play a very key role in helping to make good changes that make sense. Like Mm -hmm. you don't want to change just for the sake of changing. You want to change in such a way that is going to help you as a farmer improve what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like the, the, their ability to take all of the science and all of the evidence that we have and in all of their experience themselves and, and to help tailor that. Because every farm, as we know, is not, you know, a farm is not a farm is not a farm. There are so many little nuances. and Exactly, yeah. So then that's the purpose of ProAction is to provide, here's the blueprint. Mm-hmm. You have lameness, go do one, two, and three. And that's where the veterinarian and others can come in to say, in your particular situation, yep. what can we do that's not going to cost you a million dollars to build a new barn? Yep. What are the things that we can do that will um, make your overall farm better. Yep. No, I think that's great. So I, I like to end uh, with sort of a big picture question. We've been talking big picture a little bit for some of these things, but as we look towards the future in in a fairly diverse and very much evolving Canadian dairy industry, what do you see ahead of us? You know, what does the future of dairy look like? That's a fun question, I think. Um, I think the future of dairy is, is kind of we're going we're going in the right direction right now. Um, but I think it's going to depend a lot on what 
the, our society as a whole feels about how we should treat animals and, and how animals should be cared for. Um, I think that we're going to see dairy farmers become a more than just dairy farmers. I think we're going to see them also become um, beef farmers in a sense because of our bull calves. So that's another area of interest of mine is uh, bull calves that now in Canada we have these new changes to our transport regulations. And in the Maritimes, I already know that there are many dairy producers that are looking to um, look to their calf, their bull calf now as another business opportunity. And so I think that's going to be, I think we're going to see a lot of crossbreeding, mm-hmm. a lot more Angus slash Holstein calves that are born. Um, and so that's, I think, going to change the industry quite a bit. I think that's awesome. I, and I, I agree with you on, on all fronts, I think. We're, and we're seeing that in, in places. You mentioned you're up for some of those uh, things, and, and we don't have to look too far south to see some of the other examples like dairy beef, for example, that you mentioned. Um, well, Katie, it's been a pleasure to have a chance to chat with you and, and get inside your head a little bit and, and learn a little bit about your perspective and experience. And I hope that everyone else has been able to gain something from some of the specific things we talked about. So thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Dairy Farmers of Canada's ProAction podcast series. The focus of this project is to try and help Canadian dairy producers make informed decisions about animal care on their farms and support them in striving for continuous improvement. For more information, please visit the Dairy Farmer of Canada website, dairyfarmers.ca, and don't forget to like and subscribe for more content. This podcast was narrated, edited, and produced by me, Stephen Roach. Thank you to our guests and to you for listening. The project is hosted by the Dairy Farmers of Canada and partly funded by the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, a five-year federal, provincial, territorial initiative. Thanks for listening.